This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Why did the Aurora Theater shooter do what he did? Open fire on a late-night movie six years ago, killing 12 people and injuring 70 more. Well, there are no satisfying answers from the court-appointed psychiatrist who interviewed him. But Dr. William Reed does clear up some myths in his new book, A Dark Night in Aurora. Dr. Reed joins us from Austin, Texas, where he teaches at several universities. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate being here. I'm sorry that we're here because of a great tragedy. I just want to make clear that you were appointed by the court, not by the prosecution or defense. And one conclusion you come to unequivocally is that James Holmes's parents did nothing wrong. You declare this from the first page, I think. Why? Uh, Yes, I appreciate you mentioning that. By the way, there were two psychiatrists uh, appointed uh, for the judge. Uh, There's another who is from uh, Denver, actually, uh, Dr. Jeff Metzner, and I was the second. Uh, The reason that I said that, uh, and I mean that, is that, first of all, the parents have gotten some some, uh, bad knocks on the internet and from various people who do not understand. Second, uh, James Holmes was raised uh, about as well as anyone uh, could be raised. He had two parents. They were fine people. They still are. Uh, He was raised in a neighborhood. Uh, There was no indication that anything was seriously wrong that anyone could have seen, much less his parents. What is it that people who think his parents uh, ought to carry some of the blame, what is it that they misunderstand? I think they're trying to blame somebody. Uh, This is a uh, conundrum for folks. Uh, Everybody asks why, and some people blame it on parents or upbringing or something like that. Uh, It's a misunderstanding, and I think some people do it because they're mean. And that's not good. Help us understand the extent of interviews with people who had been around Holmes, just the extent of your knowledge that leads you to say his upbringing was such that that's not the issue. I just want to make sure that listeners understand the depth of knowledge you bring to that assessment. Sure. I interviewed a number of people, uh, people who grew up with him, people who taught him, uh, and I also benefited greatly from Dr. Metzner's interviews and other people's, the law enforcement, for example, of uh, dozens, probably scores, of people who knew him as a child, people who knew him uh, because they were the parents of children in the various neighborhoods, teachers, etc. In addition, spent, as you pointed out, some 22 or 23 hours uh, with him, uh, as some other uh, psychiatrists have as well. It it comes from a review of some 75,000 or 80,000 pages of text, pictures, uh, videos, audio, and direct interviews. So the interviews that you conducted, as you say, uh, somewhere around 22 hours, were videotaped. And this was really the only chance people had to hear from Holmes because he didn't take the stand. Uh, And these interviews helped the jury understand his strange theory that taking a life would strengthen his own. Just that anything they would have done or like pursued gets canceled out and given to me. This idea that he sort of absorbs the potential of anyone that he would kill. What was given to him was at the time the longest sentence in American history, 12 
consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, and then another 3,000 years. And Dr. Reed, in this interview, I'm really only interested in what we can learn from this mass shooting, not in glorifying the shooter or gawking at the curiosities of murder. And so let me ask this. Was there any point that this crime could have reasonably been stopped? There were several points at which it might have been stopped, but that's looking at it at at it from the present day in what some people call a retrospectoscope, if you will. Uh, there was no reason that anyone should have known that there was going to be a crime, but there were a number of things that, had they occurred differently, might have stopped either this crime or stopped it from happening when it did. Could you point to one of those uh, junctures? Sure. If, for example, the psychiatrists that Holmes saw several months before the shootings had been able to hospitalize him involuntarily, uh, then at least the shooting wouldn't have occurred when and as it did. They did not have that ability or that opportunity. They had very little knowledge about him. Similarly, just before he went back into the theater, after he had entered the theater, come out, put on his his, uh, body armor and gathered his weapons, he apparently tried to call uh, the mental health helpline at at the uh, medical center and in some way was not connected. Nobody knows exactly how that worked. But he said himself that he didn't know what would have happened uh, had he been connected to them. Yeah, I had not recalled this detail from the trial, this idea that uh, the night of the mass killing that he tried to call the mental health services at the University of Colorado, where he had been a student, and the call apparently didn't go through, to that that first uh, juncture, which was if the psychiatrists that he had been seeing would have had him involuntarily committed. But you're saying that that just, that wasn't possible. He didn't meet the threshold. Help us understand that. Sure. Psychiatrists aren't mind readers. Uh, We can't read minds any more than anybody else can. We need information uh, with which sometimes to make very difficult decisions. He told them that he thought of killing people, but he was not specific Uh, had the psychiatrist been able to ask other people around him, uh, including his parents, they wouldn't have been able to provide additional information either. We don't lock people up for having thoughts. Uh, We lock them up sometimes for having plans in in terms of mental health help, Uh, but there was no way that they could have known. Uh, I'm sure that the psychiatrist felt badly afterward, but they don't deserve blame either. Because the legal threshold is that there has to be a specific target and imminent danger. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. And imminence is a big a big part of it, whether you're talking about violence toward others or whether you're talking about the much more common situation of committing suicide or violence towards oneself. So if a psychiatrist has a patient who is generally talking about hurting people, is it incumbent upon that therapist to say, well... If you could hurt people, who would you hurt? Or is that too leading? It's okay for psychiatrists to be leading. Lawyers in court usually can't be leading, 
But it's perfectly reasonable and uh, a good thing for psychiatrists to delve into these topics. It would be uh, bad work, in my opinion, for a psychiatrist or psychologist not to ask for detail, tell me more, uh, share with me what you can, uh, a whole variety of ways to delve into it, and consider ways of preventing things if as most of those things are never going to happen, but consider what to do, such as treating the patient, considering hospitalizing him or her, uh, even considering calling law enforcement. So the shooter's attorneys used an insanity defense. Um, here's you being questioned on the stand. Absent his mental condition, we wouldn't be here at all, would we? That's a true statement. This crime would never have taken place without this mental illness. That's true, in my opinion, yes. So you had no doubt he was mentally ill. Uh, he was apparently seeing things, dancing shadows that seemed to have guns. Sometimes they'd be juggling heads. And yet, James Holmes also told you this. Oh, um, well, I knew it was legally wrong. Tough to hear. I knew it was re- legally wrong, he says there. Help us square that, uh, that he was both mentally ill and capable of understanding consequences. Boy, that's a good question and a good thing to clarify. First of all, he wasn't seeing things all the time. He was seeing, seeing, seeing things sometimes, and it's not clear whether they were hallucinations or something else. The law in situations like this, and I'm not a lawyer, but the law in situations like this is concerned with whether the person knows the difference between right and wrong, knows that what they're doing is considered wrong, knows what will happen, etc. Many, many people with mental illness, even very serious mental illness, uh, can plan, can carry out acts uh, so that the vast majority of severely mentally ill people are not out of contact with reality most of the time. And Mentally ill people have just as much right, if you will, to be convicted of a crime as anyone else, provided they don't meet the legal criteria for an insanity defense, which generally has to do with the ability to know right from wrong, the ability to control their behavior, things like that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by psychiatrist William Reed. His new book is A Dark Night in Aurora. Inside James Holmes and the Colorado Theater Shootings, Dr. Reed interviewed the shooter for some 22 hours prior to his trial. And uh, Dr. Reed, after the Aurora Theater shooting, two types of policy debates emerged over mental health care and gun laws. I want to start with that first one. Uh, The assertion is that improving the mental health system will prevent mass shootings. You write, such killings are not in any realistic sense the system's fault. Uh, Expound on what you mean there, because I think a lot of people have made the assumption that better mental health care and and a better system will just mean fewer mass attacks. Better mental health care would be a great thing for millions of people in the U.S. alone. It would not, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many other people like me, uh, prevent mass shootings. And here are some of the reasons why. First of all, far from all mass shootings are 
committed by people with mental illness. And most people, by vast, vast majority, are not destined to be violent, and certainly not violent in the way uh, James Holmes was. So that providing care and access to care for a great many more people will still miss people who don't wish to take advantage of it, or miss people who take advantage of it, as Holmes did, uh, but still carry on uh, their, their plan, his, what he called his mission. Uh, he received very reasonable evaluations. He received uh, prescriptions, um, but chose not to share the kinds of things that would, in his, uh, in his words, get me locked up. I think what I hear you saying is that improving the mental health care system brings rewards, reaps benefits. But the idea that it will stop or greatly reduce this kind of violence is asking too much of that policy change. Do I, do I have that right? You really do. And I certainly am not suggesting that legislators everywhere should not provide better funding for mental health care and access to care. Uh, sometimes tragedies and crises uh, lead legislators and, and funders to create better funding. And that's a good thing, even though the crisis or the tragedy wasn't a good thing. Um, I would do this, and speaking personally, for the millions of people who would benefit without thinking very much about a tiny, tiny group of people, maybe one or two over a decade, who would not go on to uh, shoot a number of people or kill a number of people. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if you're afraid that people, people naturally assume that folks with mental illness are violent. You know, a number do, and... Fewer and fewer do because of better education and education against stigma, etc. cetera. Uh, there have been a number of very large studies, very, very good studies, that make it clear that mental illness, even very severe mental illness, is not associated with violence uh, any more than the general population is. There's one exception to that, and that's substance abuse pretty much of all kinds. Substance abuse plus mental illness is a dangerous co combination. Substance abuse plus no mental illness is a dangerous combination. As I've said lots and lots of times, I'm far more concerned about drunks and sleepy people on the highway, about uh, crackheads, about simple criminals and mean people than I am about uh, the person with mental illness. Now, to the second policy debate that emerged after the Aurora Theater shooting, which had to do with guns and gun control, did James Holmes's access to firearms, do, do you think that was uh, critical in carrying out his plan? His access to firearms certainly influenced the way in which he chose to kill people. He made it clear that had he made it clear that he had other ways of killing people in mind he chose shooting and shooting in a certain place and shooting at, at a certain time uh, was the way that would work for his odd mission but he considered other ways of killing people i think the relevant thing here is that his mission was to kill his mission was not to shoot and yet you write that he ruled out 
bombing because it's too regulated and suspicious, that he ruled out biological methods because he was too impatient. Doesn't that underscore, then, the ease of killing with firearms? It underscores the ease. You're, you're correct. And it underscores his choice of that as an easier or, or better plan for him. It doesn't say, at least it doesn't say to me, that were the firearms not available, he would not have chosen some other way of killing lots of people, just as some mass killers do in the U.S. and elsewhere. One myth you want to dispel, William Reed, uh, is that James Holmes saw himself as the Joker from the Batman franchise. Um, He'd even earned that nickname behind bars, apparently. But just briefly, you find that storyline to be false? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Rumors started almost immediately, uh, both in the media and outside the media, about his being the Joker and Batman being a big part of his mission. He chose the Batman movie because it was going to fill the theater in which the theater that he had cased and was the place he wanted to kill people, the movie was going to fill the theater. It was shown at midnight, which was a preferred time. He did not dress up like the Joker. Uh, He was perfectly normally dressed when he walked in, and when he came back in after going out of the theater with his body armor on, it was armor. It wasn't any kind of of costume. Um, He did have red hair, but he had dyed the hair a couple of months before, uh, in part because a friend of his had dyed his hair blue. So that uh, perhaps it's a minor thing, but uh, the, the rumor about the Joker is way overblown. He also chose that particular movie in that particular time, and this is so strange to me because he wanted to spare children. He didn't think there would be as many at that showing. Of course, he did wind up... Uh, hurting, uh, uh, killing a child, and, of course, impacting the lives of many, many more. Uh, an odd moment of uh, ethics or something. In a, it, it is. And I think to try to, try to make sense of it uh-huh. in some ways is a fool's errand because his thinking, although it was in some ways deductive thinking and didn't exempt him from responsibility, um, the idea of the child... That came from him, and it uh, and it, it showed up in different interviews with him. Um, he was he expressed some remorse at the killing of a child. I don't know how genuine it was. Um, the remorse issue is is a significant one. Uh, with all the other people who were physically and mentally injured, uh, those were he said simply collateral damage. So, Dr. Reed, some people are upset that you wrote this book, and among them is Colorado's former lead public defender, Doug Wilson. Let's listen to this. I think he's just he's doing a disservice to the forensic psychiatric and psychological community to write this book, which appears to be more about money than it is actually informing folks about how sick Mr. Holmes was and what a horrific case it was. What makes you say that? I'm not a big fan of getting involved in high publicity cases as a lawyer. I've never done it. And then going out and marketing myself or my involvement in case I've probably handled personally 35 capital cases. I'm never going to write a book about the capital cases. I think it's such an invasion of everyone's privacy, the victims, the client, the client's family. I want to note that he has not read the book, uh, but would, would you respond to his concerns? 
Sure. And and I hope that he does read the book. Uh, it's available free at various libraries. Part of the point is telling the truth and clearing up inaccuracies uh, seems to me a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Journalists do it every day. Um, the royalties on this book, I do not expect to be paid even minimum wage for the amount of time spent writing it. Um, we don't, in general, criticize books on the Holocaust or on the Civil War or other, other tragedies. The business of a forensic psychiatrist doing it, I've been involved in lots and lots of capital matters as well. And this is the first one, first book I've written on those, and I don't have any plan to write another. Um, I, I guess I would stop there. After the trial, I think you asked if you could interview James Holmes one more time, and that never happened. Do I have that right? Yes, I wanted to get a little bit of closure. Uh, was not contemplating a book, by the way. I didn't contemplate the book until a couple of years ago. Yeah, what did you still hope to, to learn? A, um, I wanted some follow-up. In one sense, after the trial was over and the decisions of the jury had been made, uh, I wanted some closure for myself. I was going to pay my own way to wherever he was, et cetera, provided that correctional institution and Holmes himself uh, would allow it. Uh, that didn't work out, and and that's fine. What did closure mean to you? For one thing, after events like this, even though there's been a trial and some version of resolution, uh, there are still questions. Uh, there are people who ask, was he faking uh, during all my interviews and other people's interviews? Uh, there are people who ask, uh, is his mental illness better? Uh, there are people who ask, has he developed any remorse? Uh, I don't know the answers to those. I don't believe he was faking. None of the other mental health professionals believed he was faking. Um, other than that, uh, no one that I know of has interviewed him uh, for several years and I won't be able to either. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Dr. William Reed, court-appointed psychiatrist in the Aurora Theater shooting trial. He interviewed the assailant for nearly 23 hours, and his new book is called A Dark Night in Aurora. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This year saw the second largest wildfire in state history, the Spring Creek Fire in southwest Colorado. But as bad as it's been here, California has had it worse. There, at least eight people have been killed and more than a thousand homes destroyed. Why is California seeing so much more devastation than Colorado? Did we just get lucky by comparison, or is there something else at play? Jeff Ravage handles forest mitigation procedures for the Coalition of the Upper South Platte. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Is it luck? Yes, it is. It is most certainly luck. There, there are a couple of factors that uh, influence it. One of them is that California, being a little lower elevation, uh, has a naturally shorter fire return interval. So a fire return... Fire return interval. We're going to learn some terms here, I have a feeling. Yes. So fire return interval is the average amount of time 
that any particular uh, part of a landscape will experience fire. And the important thing to remember is that forest landscapes experience fire. Uh, fire is part of the forest ecology, and fire cannot be removed from the ecology of the forest. What I think I hear you saying is that the forests in California are quicker to burn again than the forests in Colorado. In general. Interesting. Yes. So that might explain a slight difference. But when you look at what? Human behavior, mitigation, risk, all of those things are essentially the same between Colorado and California? There, there's a little bit uh, there's a little bit higher percentage of human caused fire ignitions in California than there are in Colorado. Oh, interesting. Uh, most fire ignitions in California are human caused. We have just a little bit more in Colorado that are caused by natural causes, lightning uh, being the natural cause. But it's it's hairs on either side of uh, you know fifty fifty. And so I suppose the nugget of not good news there is that it is not impossible by any means for Colorado to have a season that looks like California's. Oh, no, we will. Absolutely. Uh, when we first started seeing our uh, catastrophic wildfires, as, as the wildfire uh, regime moved from the historical uh, fire activity in the forest to catastrophic fires in the 1990s, Shortly afterwards, we went into a period of drought, and it's typical for Colorado to have wet periods of years and dry periods of years. We went into a a heavy drought, and then we got uh, the Buffalo Creek Fire. We got the Schoonover Fire. We ended up getting the Hayman Fire, which still holds the record for the largest fire in Colorado history at 137,000 acres. Indeed. Does this have to do with where we are building our homes, our communities, the idea of living in the forests? Well, it certainly increases risk. It increases risk for individual life. It increases risk for property. It increases risk because we're building more power lines, and power lines are a significant source of ignition in forest fires. Oh, those power lines that I see crossing sort of hills and dales, those are a fire risk in and of themselves? Yes, they are. Wouldn't we have figured that out by now? Well, we know it, but and we do what we can to mitigate the risk, but... Uh, it's we still sort of like live in a regime of what is acceptable risk. The person who doesn't know that they're accepting uh, some risk is the newcomer, comes to the state, buys this beautiful piece of property in the mountains, all surrounded with trees, yeah. has a wood house with cedar shingles and a deck. And they don't realize that their home is a piece, a pile of fuel sitting in the middle of a forest that is fuel. So lots of education to be done, especially for those who have not been in Colorado for some time. Uh, This makes me think of what we heard from Lania Quinn-Davidson. She's a fire advisor with the University of California. She does wildfire education, teaching things like... Making sure that homes have, you know, basically a buffer between trees and, and shrubs and things like that in the home. You know, making sure that they don't have firewood stacked against their house or they don't have their gutters full of leaves or that they you know, aren't letting um, debris pile up in the corners of their roof, things like that, that are kind of simple and intuitive, but surprisingly, a lot of us don't do it. Suggestions sound pretty familiar to those of us who've been in Colorado for some time. Anything you'd add, by the way? 
No, it's a defensible space uh, of homes is extremely important. But nonetheless, that does not reduce your risk to anywhere near zero. Uh Those are only uh, reductions in risk, but there's always going to be a baseline risk. Uh, Fire is an essential part of the forest ecology. I think it was uh, Dave Calkin, who's a research forester for – up in Missoula, Montana, said, the way the forest burned a thousand years ago is the way it needs to burn today and the way it needs to burn in a thousand years. And yet, that doesn't necessarily get reflected in in forest management, does it? Well, forest management is, uh, uh, you know, up against a a whole slew of things. They're up against uh, the public. Sometimes the public will go, they want to say, for example, the U.S. Forest Service wants to do a large-scale treatment. The public will immediately go, well, that's, you know, anti-environmentalist, but I guarantee these people are environmentalists. And reducing the number of trees mitigating in the proper manner is... Prescribed burns, I think, is what you're hinting at. Well, that comes after. You have to go in and physically treat the forest and remove wood, remove fuel, in order for the forest to be able to be burned in a prescribed manner. As it exists now, the forest is overstocked. The trees are stressed. Um, if fire occurs, it can become a catastrophic fire very easily. Do we have an overpopulation of trees? A massive overpopulation of trees. This was caused by our uh, – this was caused by Smokey the Bear. I point my finger directly at him. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is the result of over a century of fire suppression tactics. By stopping every fire that occurred in every place, we have allowed the forest to overpopulate itself. And then this goes in ha- hand in hand, I imagine, with climate change. Things are getting warmer and they're getting drier. That can't help. That is correct. Um, Climate change is a large issue, uh, and addressing it will uh, is is the best thing that we can do. But remember, it's like the climate has reached some thresholds; it has gone over some tipping points. There's nothing we can do to alter the the next, I'd say, fifty to a hundred years of uh, impacts. Let's go back to this California contrast. So lawmakers there have introduced several bills to prevent future fire seasons from getting as bad as this one. Here's California State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson from a recent NPR report. We have been doing less and less to try to clear vegetation, to do controlled burns. And as a result, we have conditions that are the fruition with these enormous and out-of-control fires. So it sounds like there's at least talk in California of maybe a different type of management. Do you see that that would be possible in Colorado? No, we're working on it. It's the same thing. And you have to uh, listen carefully to the order she says it. Reduce vegetation, remove fuel from the forest, then run a prescribed burn, which is the best way to kick in the ecological cycle that the forest has been denied. Fire is generally a good force in the forest. It's a, it's a selective force. It removes weak trees and it recycles nutrients back into the ground. One thing we saw in California is that evacuations just didn't happen fast enough. That's part of why life was lost. Is such a thing possible in Colorado? Are we better prepared? Is that just the nature of some fires? 
Well, we spend a lot of time talking about this, and and one of the issues in a lot of our forest uh, and our wildland urban interface communities in Colorado. So these are is, communities that are in the forest. Right. Yeah, uh, they have one way in and one way out. It is a bottleneck. Uh, they were allowed for some reason to create subdivisions, and you know it can be difficult in a mountainous terrain to find. Uh, several uh, points of egress that are can easily be turned into roads. I mean, you're in a mountain. So, so should this be changed? We It, it, it should be changed as much as it can. And uh, there's a lot of work. I mean, the, the Colorado State Forest Service deals with trying to contact like large landowners that are nearby and say, look, if there's a fire, can we cut your fence and let people leave this oh, way? Oh, fascinating. Yeah. All right. Jeff, thanks for this. All right. I wish you had better news. <laughs> well, okay. it's not all bad, but I wish we had more time. Uh, I agree. Jeff Ravage there, he's with Fire Adapted Communities on the difference between the way California and Colorado handle wildfire. Okay, so lots of kids play in their backyards and dream of hitting a home run in a major league baseball game. Most of them never come close. Then there's Colorado's David Bodie. Just over a week ago at Wrigley Field in Chicago, Bodie hit what's known as an ultimate grand slam, a home run with bases loaded with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning and his teammates trailing by three runs. The fact that Bodie did it as a pinch hitter while erasing a three to nothing deficit marked the first time that had happened since 1936. Bodie attended Faith Christian High School in Longmont, where his head coach was his older brother, and one of his assistants was his father, Bob. Bob is now the coach at Stanley Lake High School. Hi, Bob. Hi, Ryan. You almost missed your son's big moment. Is that true? I did. Almost. What happened? Well, I, I watched the entire game till the top of the ninth. And when Washington uh, loaded the bases and Ryan Zimmerman got a base hit, it became three to nothing. And so I turned to my wife and I said, Game's over. And she said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. So I went downstairs and started folding clothes. <laughs> Are you going to listen to your wife next time? I should. Yeah, yes, I that's for sure. Uh, one thing you didn't miss was being in the stands at Coors Field last April when David made his major league debut with the Cubs against the Rockies. And he golfs one out into deep right center. And that ball will one-hop the wall. Bodie into second base. It's a double. Welcome to the show. <laughs> oh, how sweet is that? I love how they're rooting for him in mm. that. That's wonderful. David didn't know he'd be joining the team until very late the night before. What was it like for you and your family to hear that he'd be a major leaguer and that his debut would happen in Colorado? Well, it was pretty cool. My wife, I was asleep, and my wife woke me up about 1 o'clock in the morning and said, David's on the phone. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, he's going to play tonight at Coors Field. And I said, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, she goes, well, he is, and so on and so forth. So for us to get to go to Coors Field to watch his debut was, I mean, that was the ultimate excitement. Were there tears? 
No. No. Not for okay. me. For my wife, yes. Okay. <laughs> Just curious. <laughs> you know, I think it's easy to think of your son as an overnight sensation, but I don't think people necessarily realize the work it takes to get to the point where you might become an overnight sensation. How would you describe that journey for David? Very arduous. Um, it took him six years. He decided to to turn pro after his freshman year in college, and uh, he went one step at a time. The first year was rookie league, then it was A league, then it was double A, then it was triple A. And, uh, you know, there were times in there where he was ready to quit. He, he he wasn't getting to play and he didn't think he'd ever get a chance. So, but uh, he kept at it and uh, very, very, he persevered a lot. Tell me how Kenya fits into the picture. My family's church uh, has a, they mission up in Kenya a lot at this slum where they have a, a building and a ministry. And my my old, oldest son had been, and David decided he wanted to go. So after his freshman year at Neosho College, Junior College, he went to Kenya as part of the missions team, and it happened to be during the draft. So when he was drafted— he was in the middle of Africa with no cell phone and no way oh my to gosh. know. <laughs> How long did it take him to get the news? I think it was two days. Wow. Yeah. Everyone knew before him. Everybody knew before him. He was an 18th round pick of the Cubs in 2012. Uh, but as you note, getting drafted certainly doesn't guarantee that he'll reach the major leagues. Did you think he would eventually get there? No. I did not. <laughs> What's um, a- it's so honest. Well, I mean, that's the best 700 players in the world. And the odds of that are just so minute that, um, I mean, I, I hoped he could play as long as he could, but I never dreamed that he would be in the major leagues. Well, Bob, careful what you say, because we have, <laughs> we have someone on the line Uh-oh. who has an opinion of his own about this. Can we bring on the man himself? David Bodie, are you there? Hello, I'm here. Hi, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. What is it like to hear your father say that? I mean, he's he's been honest ever since I was a kid, and that's nothing more than I appreciate. Um, ever since I was started playing this game, and, you know, it's always been the best way. Is it, I mean, I remember back in freshman year of high school, I hit a hit a ball to right center after being on a trip, and I was got onto third base, and he was there, and he goes. Goodness, Dave, because you could play this game for a really long time. You know, and so it's just, I mean, it was, he's been on this road every step of the way, and it's been, it's been awesome. Uh-huh. Uh, we said earlier that a lot of little kids dream of hitting a game-winning home run in the majors. Uh, but again, the odds of even getting to the majors are infinitesimal. How would you describe, uh, David, the six-year process for you? I mean, it was... Difficult, hard, difficult. Um, the lifestyle is definitely not glamorous by any means. Um, what's the le- what's the least glamorous thing about it? I mean, it's it's every single day. You have long bus trips, overnight bus trips. Um, you're living out of a hotel, out of a suitcase. Every you know, eighty percent of the time, you don't even unpack when you get back to the homestand because it's, you know, three days, one of the days a travel day, then you have one day that's not, and then the third day is, again, another travel day to the next city. Um, 
you know, there's days where you just don't feel good and you don't want to go to the park, but you got to find a way to, uh, to find a way to, to dig deep and, and find a way to get better. How close were you to quitting? A couple times, pretty close. Um, once was in 14 and it was towards the end of the season. And, uh, you know, I called my dad and said, this is it. And he goes, you know, I'll finish out the season, see what happens. Ended up getting called up to AAA at the end of the year for a week. Um, you know, I got a little rejuvenated by that. And then again in 16, uh, moving around with my family, a newborn daughter at the time, she was six months. And I was like, you know, I can't put you guys through this anymore. And, and, you know, my wife was supportive of it. And I said, you know, if you still love this game, keep playing. And so we did. Would he call you up, Bob, at those, at those low points? Sometimes. And I think sometimes he called his older brother, uh-huh. Danny, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always encouraged him because I, I thought, you know, don't I tell any kid this. Don't, don't quit until somebody tells you you're no longer capable of playing. So, I mean, I, I, I wanted him to keep going as long as he could just to see. I wonder, David, if you struggle with, like, imposter syndrome or the voices in your head that say, I'm not good enough, uh, you know, and maybe who, who compares yourself to the, the, the others in the major leagues. It's, there's a, it's hard to say this. It's in a mindset of a competitor and a, per, and a player – in your own head, you always think you're the best. Um, that's how you got to tell yourself. That's how you self-talk. Um, and then that's it. You know, you don't, there's nothing. You just, you let the outside noise be outside noise. And huh. and you just got to be really self-confident in yourself um, and believe in yourself. And that's that's really the only thing. And I think if you were to ask anybody to, to tell you that, that's, you know, that's what, that's what has to go through your head um, in order to to keep pushing yourself. Because, yeah, you're going to fail. This game is a game of failure. Um, so when you're O for whatever, you got to just keep telling yourself that you're the best and you be the best version of yourself. Will you loan me a little bit of that, please, David? <laughs> um, <laughs> so you're on a team now that won the World Series two years ago. You're playing along all-stars like Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, uh, whom you were probably watching on television like everyone else was a few years ago. How, how do you go about fitting in with that group? Oh, they're great guys. Unbelievable guys. They've accepted me... Uh, in spring training and uh, you know it's just they're just another they're just other guys just like um just like anybody else um you know we're just here to do our job and and to play a game and and win as many games as we can and that's just everybody's has the same mindset the same goal um at the end of the day all that matters is if we get the w or not uh, it's really refreshing to hear you say that about your fellow teammates. Uh, there, there's a story that at the start of spring training, way before you'd achieved your current success, the Cubs asked you to go through your training routine in front of all the team's infielders. Uh, I think of all the... They, they did. Yeah. I think of all the starters being all-stars, first-round draft choices, really big deals. How was that? That was a, that was an interesting uh, day when our third-base, Butter, Brian Butterfield, uh, came up and asked me to do that. Um, Unbelievable, unbelievable coach. Um, one of the best in the business. And I was like, you're, not, you're asking me, a rookie, to come up here and give my intro routine to, you know, gold glovers and all-stars and stuff. It was a, uh, I told him, I said, I'd only do it if you took credit for the entire drill and put me up to it. And so he ended up doing that. So then I, I was like, you can have all the credit. You take everything, every bit. This is your drill, and you told me to do it. Um, and it was it was all fun, and they, they enjoyed it. I love it. 
Uh, well, since the big grand slam, you've been trending on Twitter almost every day. Uh, there are a number of new accounts. David Bodie for most valuable player. David Bodie's bat flip. Even David Bodie murdered me, presumably from a Washington Nationals fan. Uh, <laughs> I think the irony is that you aren't on social media. Do I have that right? That is correct. I, I you know, stay off of, of that. I have a Facebook that I keep for you know, close friends and family and stuff, but... You know, there's a lot of stuff out there. For every good thing somebody says about you, there's equally something bad or trying to tear you down. And so just, for me, staying away from that and from, you know, I waste time just probably scrolling and, and reading stuff. And, you know, I got a family with two kids and a wife. And you know, just being off of that, just for me, is just a better fit. This was awfully fun. Thanks to both of you for joining us. And congratulations, Dad. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much, David. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. David Bodie is a rookie infielder with the Chicago Cubs. He's from Longmont and played in high school at Faith Christian, where he was coached by his father, Bob, currently the coach at Stanley Lake High School. They joined us to discuss David's rise to stardom this season. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And now we remember an exceptional Coloradan, a 96-year-old man who devoted the final years of his life to people in hospice care in Grand Junction. Joe Doak, yeah, that's his name, didn't want people to die alone. He'd hold their hands, talk to them, pray with them. And this month, Doak himself passed away. That's the irony here is, as far as we know, my father was alone when he passed, but I would like to believe that all those people that my dad comfort that had died were actually there with him when he he died. That is Roger Doak, one of Joe's six children. Roger says his dad served others his entire life. He was an electrical engineer and owned an electronics shop to provide for his family. But he always found time to do more. He taught computer skills to seniors, English to new immigrants, and reading to kindergartners. He delivered meals on wheels and even shared what he grew in his garden with friends and neighbors. That is the makeup of my dad. He wants to help people. He wants to comfort people that may be alone. He's, he's a very uh, religious person, and so I think this played into him being a devoted Catholic. And so Roger wasn't surprised when his dad decided to volunteer to sit at the bedsides of people facing death at Hope West Hospice. After all, Joe had taken care of his wife as she'd struggled with Alzheimer's. The pathway to hospice was through the nursing home, and my mom was in two different nursing homes for over four and a half years. And so my dad spent almost every day with my mother, and in doing so, he got to know many of the residents. And he was with my mom when she passed, holding her hand. My my dad would go back to the nursing home because many of them did not have family or the family just could not get to the nursing home on a frequent basis. But witnessing death was certainly not easy. After seeing his first hospice patient die, Joe apparently broke down sobbing and shaking. I think that's a very difficult task. 
to be able to sit with somebody and be with them when they're dying. And it's extremely emotional. And my dad would tell me that there's no other feeling like that when you're holding someone's hand and you're sitting with them and they take their last breath. In an interview before his death with the Daily Sentinel in Grand Junction, Joe Doak said he strongly believed that to be loved and your ability to love are one's strongest achievements in life. Services were held for Joe this past weekend, and his family hopes people will remember him through acts of kindness. Doak was 96. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner, and we are on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks again.